Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Today's episode of Channel 33 is brought to you by SeatGeek, the presenting sponsor for my podcast, as well as the only fan-friendly app for buying and selling tickets for sports and music. With just two taps on your phone, you can instantly buy SeatGeek tickets to an event, and you can enter that event just using your phone. No paper tickets. Drop your old ticket app. Use one that's built for 2016. Download the free SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. Hello and welcome to Achievement Oriented, the gaming podcast from Channel 33. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a writer for The Ringer. And on the other line, this podcast adapts to the choices he makes. <laughs> it's my Ringer colleague, Jason Concepcion. Hey, Jason. We've done it. We've made a hard choice to be here with you. And you know, we, we <laughs> no. took a lot of time thinking about that choice. And then we clicked on the choice. We selected it from the, from the dialogue wheel and we're here with you today. And we will all remember that choice. <laughs> <laughs> so we hope that you all had tolerable or better Thanksgivings and were able to sneak away from any uncomfortable family conversations and hide in front of a screen somewhere. This is our second themed episode of the week. So we talked about stealth games on Tuesday and today we're talking about storytelling and what would traditionally have been referred to as adventure games. Ooh. And you can't really talk about that in 2016 without talking about Telltale, the developer that has made adventure games into a formula and a yep. factory. And later in this episode, we're going to talk to Sean Vanneman, who used to be a writer for Telltale and was the creative force behind the first season of The Walking Dead, which was, of course, universally acclaimed and great and really sort of springboarded <laughs> And Telltale. better than the show? Shh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't even have to say shush. That's, that's fine with me. And uh, then he left Telltale to go start his own studio, Campo Santo, and he then wrote Firewatch. It's a first-person adventure game. It came out in February. It's on every platform, and it follows the story of a guy named Henry who decides to spend a summer as a fire lookout in a national forest, and various events befall him. It's got a great story and great storytelling, and it's been a big success, and it's definitely one of our favorite games of the year. So yep. we're going to talk to him about the storytelling techniques he used in Firewatch and also just in video games in general. So that'll be kind of the developer's perspective. And first, we're going to talk about our experience with Telltale. We have both played the Walking Dead games. We've both played the Game of Thrones games. I have now caught up on the Batman games, which are up through four episodes. Four out of five have been released already. You were not able to play yet because Telltale discriminates against Mac owners. <laughs> <laughs> as so. as many as many game uh, developers still do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just to pull back a bit, I mean, what Telltale has managed to accomplish over the past yeah. decade plus, and I don't think many people necessarily realize how far back they go. This is a company that goes back to 2004, yep. lots of LucasArts veterans, and they started out doing more traditional adventure games, Sam and Max and Monkey Island. Yep. And now they have just perfected this formula where they're able to get every license in the world and churn out these episodic games. And, and they've kind of TV-ified video games to a, a certain extent. And they've just been an equal opportunity adapter of every franchise. I mean, they've done a CSI game and they've yep. done a Law & Order game. <laughs> 
which yeah, which should be feels like that should not be allowed for some reason. I know, right? And they've they've done a DC game, Batman, yeah. and they're doing yeah. a Marvel game, which looks like it's going to be Guardians of the Galaxy. So they are just kind of working with both sides of the aisle. They release on every platform they possibly can, so they're just everywhere, and yeah. they've managed to establish this reputation where anyone will trust them with their characters. They really are the best at at what they do. I think if you think of the narratively driven game space, I mean, it's pure narrative almost like the yeah. mechanics of the games are extremely primitive, almost to the point of like, why are they even, why do they exist? Yeah. But it, in terms of choice driven narrative games, choose your own adventure type games, they're, they're the best. They're the best. I mean, the way they calibrate the choices that you have to make throughout their games, that's the engine that drives them. Yeah. And they've probably done as much as any developer to erase video games bad rap as as a poor storytelling sure. medium or and they've managed to not screw up horribly which is why they keep getting companies to <laughs> trust them with these very lucrative <laughs> franchises and it's pretty impressive <laughs> that they can get csi and law and order and dc and marvel maybe we need telltale to make the american government into a game and somehow both parties will want to work with them everyone wants to work with telltale because they now have this track record of not tarnishing your license yeah i mean i uh, the game of thrones one i went into you know with a little bit of trepidation because that's like mm-hmm. a, you know that's a hard license to play in if you're not george r. r martin the fans are obviously so fickle but it was really great i mean it's, it's a pretty hard license for george r. r martin yeah i know right <laughs> uh you know you're asked to kind of um navigate the trade winds of power from this from the perspective of the kind of medium-sized northern house and you've got the Lannisters pulling you one direction. You've got the Boltons pulling you in a direction. You've got, you know, your sense of duty to your house. And there was really very few gaming experiences that I had in 2014, 2015 that were as enjoyable as verbally sparring with Cersei Lannister. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's kind of the genius of what they've done is historically licensed games have often been tie-in games. Yep. So you, you play the movie and then you play the game of the movie and it's always rushed and it's always a cash in and telltale crafts these original stories inside the same universe so with walking dead and game of thrones it's kind of peripheral characters they're cameos from characters you'd recognize from the tv show or the comics but they aren't really playing a starring role it's sort of original stories and that gives them the the freedom to play around a bit and work in the the well-known faces but not have to be bound by the established storylines and I think that's sort of the main thing that sets Batman apart for me so far is not so much the mechanics. I mean, the the engine has gotten an overhaul and it badly needed one. <laughs> I, I played uh, the previous Telltale games on consoles and... It was just so glitchy. Yeah. You know, and it sort of showed what their priorities are, the storytelling and the narrative. Right. And not so much the the gameplay, although even the storytelling and the narrative was affected at times by just audio cutting out or not syncing up with the cutscenes. And I guess that's just a product of how much content they are trying to churn out now. But they've given it an overhaul, so it looks better. It looks very comic booky. It's higher resolution. When Bruce Wayne strips down, you can really see the bat bulge in <laughs> very high fidelity. 
which is what which is what we've been waiting for. <laughs> yeah, really. To be fair, for so long. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know the the basic beats are the same, and that's the the knock against Telltale is that what right. seemed original and revolutionary the first time you played a Telltale game now just seems like a Telltale game, and the jokes we were making in the intro about remembering certain decisions yeah. and the messages that flash on the screen it's kind of the first time you played a telltale game it was wow the choices i make really affect the story and then every time after that it's well they don't actually affect the story as much as you're led to believe and it's kind of the antithesis of show don't tell as a storytelling right. technique when every time there's a pivotal moment the game basically just announced that hey, that was an important <laughs> moment <laughs> so that kind of gets old after a while i agree with that totally my perspective is that game developing so much of it is about hiding things from mm -hmm. the player. You know, it's like menu screens exist to, you know, mask load screens and certain animations, you know, like when I'm, I'm thinking of, of Tomb Raider, these really cool like animations where Lara Croft like kind of tries to pass through this small crack in a wall is really just to cover um, the fact that your console needs to like load the graphics, load all this stuff. Right. And that's essentially what Telltale does as well. I mean, they have a narrative driven game that has the kind of bare illusion of choice. And they've just become almost scientific about creating these choices that kind of give you like the least satisfying outcome either way. It's like mm -hmm. a, the best of bad choices, but yeah. they're, but really compelling it in that way. But I agree with you. You know, I agree with you that it's like, it's very bare bones stuff, but at the same time, like they do it so well. It's like, in terms of story-driven games, I don't think there's anybody that does it better. It's all story. Yeah, and I guess that's the sacrifice you have to make to be able to develop this many games at once right. and work with this many licenses. You have to have this framework that's almost interchangeable, and you can just plug in each license's unique aspects on this same basic backbone. And obviously, you still have to tell a compelling story, and for the most part, they still do that, and that's the, the most important part. And what sets Batman apart for me, I think, is that it's not those peripheral characters or original characters. It is the main characters of Batman, some of the most famous adversaries you're used to, and Batman himself and Alfred and Two-Face and the Joker, and, you know, they all pop up. But I think it, it really tinkers with the established backstories in a way that I don't think the other Telltale games have. I mean, it's you do play the Batman origin story and the shooting in the alley for the 20 millionth time <laughs> in, in the past decade alone, but it's a little different this time. You find out some things about the Waynes that I don't think are part of the established oh, wow. story. You know more about comics than I do, but from what I was able to glean in my Wikipedia deep dives, I mean, there's sort of a, a side to Vicky Vale that is not in previous depictions of Vicky Vale. So it really does seem to mess with the story I know, at least in a way that previous Telltale games haven't. And I suppose that's a product of it being a comic book property and comic book backstories being very malleable as it is. And DC's universe is being rebooted now for what, like the second or third time in the past several years. So at least, yeah. Yeah. So this happens regularly anyway, but that has made it more interesting to me because it's actually finding out new things about characters or contradicting things about characters. And the gameplay is largely the same, but there are at least some efforts 
to do something new. There is a new option called Crowdplay, which is sort of a local multiplayer that lets the people around you vote on the decisions you make in the game. I haven't tried that because I'm so alone, (laughs) but there are a few other tweaks here and there. Because it's Batman, there are crime scenes where you piece together clues and you link them together and then you kind of come up with a unified theory of the crime and there are parts where you can fly a drone sort of and plan out you know taking down enemies that that kind of thing so they're making efforts so it's not like click here to kick zombie in the head (laughs) it's a little little more advanced than that i mean it's still largely quick time events but there's at least a, a planning aspect to it that has hasn't been present before and there was one planning stage where there were a bunch of bad guys and the text said four armed guards stealth not an option and i was so happy to hear that stealth wasn't an option which won't be a surprise to anyone who listened to our last episode can you give us a synopsis like a spoiler free Uh, synopsis it's basically harvey is is running for mayor of gotham and so you're it's partly the politics of supporting him or not supporting him and then people are out to get batman and there's this group called the children of Arkham that has mysterious origins and is trying to, you know, terrorize the city and the, the usual kind of Batman thing. But yep. and, you know, meanwhile, people are trying to take over Wayne Enterprises and force Bruce out. So it's kind of like a, a spiral for Batman, at least where I am through the first four episodes. Things are just not going his way at all. It's tough being Batman. <laughs> well, by the way, I, I, one of my favorite things to do is to have comics people explain like the plot of it, like the arc of a plot. <laughs> Just because it's the most insane sounding thing like ever. <laughs> I love explaining plots, comic plots. To people, oh, it's like, see, there's infinite universes and they're collapsing, and then these people. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah, it's great. That's why all the Wikipedia pages are like thirteen thousand pages long. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, and I mean, there's still some uh, strange aspects to it. Like Harvey Dent is built like a bodybuilder for some sure. reason. I, I don't know why, but okay. And, uh, you know, there's still some some glitchiness, but because I was playing on PC, I don't know whether to blame my PC or right. the game. In the past, I could just blame the game, but now I, I don't know. It could be my computer, but that was still an issue. It's still Telltale, and the latest Telltale releases, it seems, have just sort of settled in in this kind of comfortably above average territory where they get you know like a 75 ish average review score because everyone is just like yeah that was same old good telltale it didn't really surprise us i I guess to to ascend the metacritic totals they need to shake things up and do something different than they have but tyranny of the metacritic totals (laughs) yeah right and i'd like to see them do like a a fully branching game where the choices were not just cosmetic and it wasn't just it seems to have some import but then you play it again and even if you make a different choice you you mostly get sort of shuttled into the the same big plot points and Obviously, it would be a ton of work to actually build out a different ending and a different sequence. Why can't they just make on... Mass Effect? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you could somehow like No Man's Sky it so that you could just have a procedurally generated storyline that was actually good. But 
yeah, I mean, that's just something you can't do when you're juggling several licenses at the same time, but that would be fun because there is a little bit of disillusionment that sets in, I think, after your first Telltale experience when you yep. realize that it's it's not quite as dependent on your choices as, as you think it is. All right, so that's enough Telltale talk. We will now move on to some ex-Telltale talk and bring on Sean Vanneman. A great talker, by the way. Yeah, you'd, and excellent you'd never, talker. You'd never guess, but from a guy who <laughs> creates uh, dialogue-driven <laughs> Games that he'd be such a great talker. <laughs> right. So we are joined now by Sean Vanneman, who is one of the founders of the indie developer Camposanto and the writer of Firewatch. Sean, thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. This is awesome. I want to thank you, first of all, for Free Roam Mode, which is a, <laughs> a new new addition to Firewatch. You are so welcome. Um, I spent literally minutes tweeting about it. <laughs> That's pretty much my contribution to Free Roam Mode. <laughs> Yeah. While I was playing the game, I not to insult the the narrative and the story, your contribution no, no, fuck to it, it. But, yeah. but I I wanted the story to sort of stop just so I could spend more time in that world. And I guess I'm curious about what role you played in the building of that world, because obviously a lot of it comes down to the art design and the engine and the mechanics. But what did you do to kind of build this time and place and this sense of space that made it such a grossing experience. Yeah, it's a game where like all of this stuff has to work together really in concert or it kind of falls apart really fast. So our method of building the world, aside from just like the initial direction, like I guess I had the idea for Firewatch, like Jake Rodkin, who started the company with me, was my roommate. And I always talked about wanting to make a game set in Wyoming because I grew up there. And I believe in like creative direction via just hiring it's like what type of offense do you run based on like your core five of your basketball team? <laughs> right. You know, it's yeah. sort of just like, well, Ollie wants to make a game. Jane wants to make a game with us. Um, we feel like we can build this nucleus around people who share a lot of the same values as us. And what like what do we expect out of a world where those people, those two people especially come together to make a first person open world ish thing. But in terms of the actual process, a lot of it was just drawing out a map of something we thought would feel good and congruous with what the player we were, we were asking them to do and then learning from our mistakes as we would build those things and then try to attach them to the other areas of the world that we built as opposed to like we learned really quickly that like thinking about the tower as a hub mm. and missions as spokes was really bad because you had to walk back so we had to do these sort of like this like looping sort of swirling map where you would curl around other objectives and sort of catch, you know, the the tower, like the Henry's Lookout Tower, on a hill on your way back, and be like, "Oh, wait, I'm kind of like near where I'm, I'm near home, but I haven't been here to this place yet because I couldn't mm -hmm. access it from the other angle or something." And then a lot of that was like the way those things were laid out was so much about what we were trying to accomplish in the story right then. So it's like, "Oh, wouldn't it be like, oh, where's Henry going to find thing X?" It's like. Wouldn't it be just sort of really disturbing if it was near his tower the entire time? It's like, oh, yeah, of course. Okay. So that informed the way the world was laid out um, and the way we, we sort of started to build the space. And then, like, on the flip side, we got to a point in development where we knew how much time it took to, like, make the game and how much time it took to make, you know, like, one little quadrant of the map. And it became about, 
okay, Jane, build a place that feels like this. Ollie, like, light and draw a place that feels like this. And then we're going to think about things we can put there that, that are, you know, tonally appropriate and stuff like that. So, I mean, we're a small team. So we're all just sort of, like, constantly bouncing off each other and, like, passing direction back and forth. But uh, it resulted in Firewatch, which is really strange to me. <laughs> like, it's like, okay. <laughs> like, oh, man. All right. Fine. Good. That was the output. Totally acceptable. Yes, fine. <laughs> yeah. But the, the entire time we were always sort of tiptoeing up to a like hidden edge of failure of like, this is really not the way to be building a game like this. This is not the way to be building an outdoor space. Yeah, but we didn't fall off. So that was good and positive. One of the things that really just amazed me about Firewatch is it was such a strong narratively driven game. The immersion was like incredible there was like a level of emotional immersion that i think i've not i've not experienced in in many games you know like there's that conversation where um, you're henry's in his tower you're watching like the kind of the forest burn talking with delilah and you start like you start experiencing these like kind of like feelings of how much do i really want to expose of this character's personality to this other character and neither of these characters exist you know what i mean like really interesting um experience and it seems to me like you've you've really kind of like cracked some kind of code um, mechanic. You know, like you you've come from the from the telltale genre, and there's you know when when the player interacts with the character, it's always felt a little not not quite satisfying to me. Whereas in Firewatch, everything you do, everything you look at, everything you can have the character do drives the story forward. How do you build a game? How do you do that? Like from the nuts and bolts. Like what is your strategy in trying to build a game that's that immersive? Yeah, I mean, sort of kind of what you're getting at was a feeling that I always had making uh, like third person adventure games where I knew when I went home and like played games that I felt like emotionally stirred by. It was usually when I was in first person and having that like level of connection to what was happening in the world. You know, so much of the things we would talk about when we started Firewatch was like, man, like I love Bioshock. And I always just wanted to be able to talk back to Atlas. Like, I just wanted to, like, have my character open his stupid (laughs) mouth and say, like, yeah, bro, let's go save your family. Or, hey, dude, uh, you fucked me. (laughs) You know, like, um, I wanted that so badly. And I've wanted that in, you know, like, the Valve games and things like that. And at that time um, of starting Firewatch, it's almost like, because nobody had nobody really does that with first person characters that often right. it was like there was like some design rule that someone somewhere learned a long time ago so you just don't do it you know it's like oh if someone if that was the thing that should be done then people would be doing it because we couldn't really point to a game that had the level of voice acting and writing that we thought we could bring to the game that also had a voice protagonist in first person that had sort of pre-proved that that would work. And then there is like little things that there are like nuts and bolts, sort of like meat and potato rules to writing a good game protagonist with, especially if you're going to have dialogue choices in the game that I've sort of picked up regardless of the perspective of the game. And that's just making sure the player is like always throwing the main levers of where this conversation turns, you know, like, if you and I are in, we're having this conversation, three of us right now, and Ben, if you're the player, I, it would be important to know, like, if the conversation was going to get really dark, like, 
where you get to throw the lever to either create that moment to happen or react to it in a way that's appropriate. So you're always sort of thinking about, is the player, am I letting the player create the tone of the conversation or am I letting them react to something that was out of their control? And if you're not like really aware of where you're doing that, you just make something that's at the, I guess at best kind of boring <laughs> and at worst, like really off-putting. And I mean, so much of, so much I think of what people will get to, like what people respond to in Firewatch is that like Rich and Sissy who voice the characters, Rich Summer and Sissy Jones, just are incredible. Um, and they have a, like an ease of communication and of acting that suspends your disbelief so quickly that allows you to start participating in the fantasy in a way that I think people react well to. Um, at least it would work for me. Like when I would, you know, like I write the game and then the words kind of go into a database and stuff. And I'll remember like the one or two goofs that I think are good. It's like, oh man, I can't wait till they say that line that it was so fucking smart that I wrote, <laughs> you know. But in terms of like the the wave of the conversation and like what happens between two people when they talk to each other, I kind of forget almost. And then I remember I would hear it in the studio and be like, because we recorded them at the same time, which I think was really smart. It was a smart choice for us to make in terms of them playing off each other and finding their relationship in like it, mostly in the tone of how they communicated and then i'd see it in the game and, I'd be, and i would respond well to it and a lot of it i don't know it's also interconnected when he talks like how do you accomplish it because it's sort of like you i guess the best way to talk to describe the process is you're walking through and you don't do this in a lot of more capital g games like that are either more systems driven or more simulation driven but you know the purpose of something like Firewatch is to really suspend your disbelief and for the game to be very, very subtly, but very confidently in control of the tone throughout and make you buy into it as an artificial thing. And then you just stop forgetting that it's, you know, the way a good movie does that, you know, it's like just classic suspension of disbelief. So I think a lot of what we do is just sort of move through the game being really, really, like literally playing the game, really in tune with what I'm feeling while I'm playing it, you know, I mean, to a really like disgusting level of like hypervigilance that is annoying <laughs> to most people <laughs> where it's like, ah, God, it's like, they're still, they're kind of just still talking. Like there was no turn in this conversation. Like, I feel like she's not leaving me alone. Like, oh, or like, oh, I'm kind of bored here or like, God, I haven't heard from her in a while, but not for like any particular reason. And then making sure that we've built really like good, like constructive tools to address those types of problems where, you know, we built a system where I would just look at the world map from the top down and create a, like a volume, just a, like a cube that you would like an invisible cube that you'd walk into. And uh, inside of those, they would all have some sort of impact on the conversation, which is like, okay, they can talk about these type of things in these types of places. They definitely can't talk about anything in these certain types of places. And then I would sort of like grow them and shrink them and drag them around till I felt confident that like a certain chapter of the game was tonally correct or like in line with what we were at least trying to accomplish. I don't know if that answers your question at all, but uh, the short answer is it's so hard. <laughs> it sucks. It fucking sucks so hard. It's really just 
just a living nightmare of you're standing on a, a rug the size of a football field and you step on one bump and that creates another one but it's like at the 10 yard line and you're not very close to where that happened you know um and the moment you feel like the rug is smooth you're like ship it just ship it just ship it right now <laughs> get it out <laughs> like press the button put it on steam put it on steam yeah uh, we'll add the free room mode later <laughs> yeah exa- exactly i mean you know like again like 10 people made firewatch so we always knew we wanted a free room mode we knew we wanted to do like a really robust making of mode so we put out the firewatch audio tour about uh, a month and a half ago or two months ago yeah and like we just it's lucky that we live in a time where we don't have to like press it to disc if you know because we didn't go that right. way it's the mm-hmm. games of age of all digital so we can give ourselves a little bit of a break on that you know it's like you can just say no we'll ship free roam and it'll be great because people will like come back to the game in their steam library or on psn you know and then maybe they'll want to like replay it at that moment because with a game like ours it's kind of it's it's like have you ever been to like a restaurant where they like do like they bring you little small courses but they bring you like 11 and at yes. like yeah. course eight you're like just stop this, this would have been fine just stop i'm like every bite of food i have from this point forward is making the previous bites i had worse and it's all just gonna be poop so please stop <laughs> um yeah it's kind of like that i think in that you you don't want to like just like drop a giant bomb of when stuff is like when our stuff is like so like tonally intricate to drop just a whole bunch of stuff on someone all at once so i'm kind of thankful that we live in a time where we don't have to do that so aside from wanting to establish your own unique style what made you want to move away from the walking dead model of sort of telegraphing to the player this is an important moment you know having some <laughs> some text on the screen that says so and so will no delilah that. will remember that um, <laughs> right or you know and, and having kind of the stats at the end of a section of the game that says yeah. you know this percentage of players made that choice because you know when that happened when you worked on that that was kind of a, a step forward and everyone was very impressed by that and it worked really well at the time and the evolution of game storytelling has kind of maybe moved past that a little bit now it's it's evolving very quickly so so what made you want to ditch that aspect of things i mean i i think that um that like so like if you look at the des- the design of walking dead season one where that stuff came into vogue um for uh telltale like so much of the theme and mechanic of that made sense it was just like so correct in in so many different ways and like the folks at Telltale who were like really pushing for all those systems and built those systems, um, which was totally not me, were like r- totally like I saw something there that I think was really smart for The Walking Dead, which is The Walking Dead is about these like crystallized left or right fork in the road. Do you kill the guy or bring him with you? Do you you know do you save person A or save person B moments? And it's been that way in the comic books, and it's definitely that way in the show. And those like, will they or won't they, and did he or didn't he, and like, will he or won't he, whatever questions are the things that like continue to like churn the, like the stoke the flames of the fans that, that are super into The Walking Dead. And, you know, when you would talk about a Walking Dead episode the next day at work or on a podcast, <laughs> um, you would go like, oh, can you, I can't believe they killed character X. You know, mm-hmm. like, oh, I totally thought it was going to, it should have been Y, because if they killed that character, then whatever, whatever. So, like, exposing those stats at the end of a of a episode of the game, like, was just 
part of that conversation. You could start having that conversation in your head with like every other person who had played the game. Like, oh, why did they feed Larry? Like, Larry is the worst. And then it would draw you into the community and like, okay, I'm going to go online and like start talking to people about this because I see that other people are playing the game. It's just really, really smart. Whereas like when I think about choice in a video game, the thing that really interests me sort of theme, ag- like more from on a more like theme agnostic level, because um, I would I would argue that like that type of design, by the way, doesn't quite work with every genre or every type of right. story. When you're just an una- when you're just a hero, Lee Everett's just a guy. He would play him as a hero, but like he's he has the emotional possibility space to be lots of different things. When you're a hero, are those choices like as interesting? You know, you can argue yes or no, whatever. But <laughs> the thing that always interested me about uh, choice in a video game is the sort of like the micro moments that allow you to influence what's coming out of the screen and feel like you're there. You know, like, I have never, even though I worked on games and uh, had a lot of, like, fun making games where, yeah, are you going to, like, save Doug or Carly? Are you going to, like, kick this girl out of your group or bring her with you? While I had a good time designing those things, the things that I, like, where my heart is, is giving players the verbs to feel like they are really in a story like that's the stuff that i find most interesting like i don't know if we're always going to do dialogue choices in our game like Mm. there could be a time where the story and the mechanic of the game just uh it's more interesting for the story to react to your actions as opposed to or the characters of the world to react to your actions as opposed to like the one of you know three choices you made you know i just think like the way we think about it is way less like we have a house style now and more just we have a core set of values for the type of games we want to make which are games that like transport you to a space that make you feel like another person and then hopefully while you're feeling like another person are capable of like ginning up like empathy and like internal player conflict that you didn't quite know was there you know like people have a very strong reaction to the end of Firewatch and so many players will finish the game, have a really strong reaction, and then send me a tweet or like a DM or something like six days later and be like, I was thinking, <laughs> you know, and like, that's amazing. Like, that's, that's incredible. You know, like, that's like, that's like, all right, good. Like, that's success. And then, you know, outside of any like sales figures or whatever, like, then the game was a success. So, and also like, you know, like when you start your own company, like you have, all you really have is your values and like the thing that you're trying, the thing that you're chasing and trying to produce. Like the idea that there's like a secret sauce or like a, a problem to be cracked in entertainment software is like ridiculous, you know, um, because it's it, it's just so elusive what people will like and play and respond to and then tell their friends to play. You know, it's just, you know, I mean, when when World of Warcraft came out, we were all like certain that in the year 2016 we would just only be playing like <laughs> elaborate MMOs. You know, <laughs> like, my, like my sister, my sister plays a lot of games, and uh, she like sent me a text yesterday. She was like, "What MMO is good?" And I was like, "I think still WoW." <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. Like Guild Wars is good. I, I don't, I, what a what a strange question to be asked right now. Yeah, it was just such a you know. So you you mentioned how you know Walking Dead has these very dramatic moments, and maybe Firewatch didn't to the same extent. But 
throughout the game, there is a sense that it could. And of course, there's this incredible tension that is building up throughout the whole playthrough. And I don't want to give away any specifics because if anyone's listening who hasn't played yet, I don't want to spoil that experience for them. But there are ways the game could go that you think it might go, that there might be more supernatural elements to it, that there will be sort of a, a mystery box element to the game. And ultimately, it doesn't really go in that direction. And I don't think it needed to go in that direction. I think we loved it as it was, but I also probably would have loved it if it had gone the other way. So how tempted were you? How close did you come to kind of going down that path instead? Um, that's, uh, you know, I mean, we were first starting off, like everything was on the table. It was like, you're being hunted by a bear also. <laughs> you know, like, and I was like, because somebody pitched that, and I remember we were in my house, and uh, I was like, that's so scary. Like, that, like, got into, like, so, like, a weird, like, animal brain part of me where I was like, something happened when I was a kid that made me afraid of bears, for sure. Because I went like, oh, man, that's the scariest thing I could even ever imagine. Um, but uh, I think once... So the opening of the game, which I won't give away, but was like the first thing other than like the setting and some of the core design tenets of like, it's going to be first person and you're going to walk around and um, have a conversation with another person. Again, just like, I want to be able to talk back to Atlas. Um, simple as that. Or like, why can't you tell Gladys to eat shit um, from Portal? Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. I just like, so who's Gladys? Um, but uh, <laughs> We're in a safe space here. We're in a safe reference yeah, space here. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember what the, uh, oh, no, 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 never mind. I was like, what are the ringer rules on swearing? And then I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I listen to that 1600 podcast. Yeah. Guys, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think one, the, one of the first things that, in terms of like shippable sort of like real stake in the ground content we made was the opening um, which I made in a product called Twine, which is just like a publicly available choosing an adventure engine that I used to use. It's the simplest thing. Like you can literally sit in front of a computer with your like five-year-old like niece and make a cool video game together. It's really cool. But uh, I made that. And then when that existed, it was like pretty obvious that the story was going to be driven by the psychosis of these characters and then things started to kind of fall into place. That didn't like preclude the idea of a villain or an antagonistic force or the supernatural or whatever. But when we realized that the real motivating force to the game was going to be Henry and Delilah and didn't have to be didn't have to be something spooky out in the woods, it meant that we could put spooky stuff out of the wo- out in the woods and the players would have all this space to wonder what it was mm-hmm. and that felt more right to us yeah i mean and also like we were just like a small indie team making a game and the idea of not making a genre piece was really interesting to me and i went like well if this doesn't work out we'll just go we're, i'm gonna have to go back to making genre content because that's what most video games are so i'm gonna have to like go take a job making a game where it is a clover field <laughs> you know or whatever <laughs> yeah. like so like maybe i can think about it not being that right now and see what happens you know but that's not to say that there's not something spooky in the game listeners who haven't played firewatch <laughs> um yeah it seems to me that there's like a, a natural tension between the interactivity of video games and 
the necessary linearness of a narrative. How do you oh, yeah. um and Firewatch the great things about it is how skillfully you guys hide that kind of guiding hand. Could you talk about some of the, the techniques, the things that you use to kind of hide the fact that you kind of like guide a player into a direction in order to tell this story? Yeah, I mean you're pointing to like a core conflict with like the type of games that I have been able to make especially like i'm trying to think probably like five or six years ago there was a lot of conversation around the idea at least in the industry like for like at the professional like conference level and stuff like people talking about how core narrative games were like not just not viable but were in conflict with the dynamic systems driven nature of what a video game not just is but should be that trying to tell a real story in a game was folly and that the emergent stories you would have in something like i guess if you're playing today like i don't know if you guys have played rim world it's like a dwarf fortress with pretty graphics or well because dwarf fortress has no graphics but like or like something like you know the player stories of something like sim city or mm. whatever where you're like oh yeah there was a flood and then this happened and then all this happened you know and everyone's story is kind of different like there was like a real like staunch like perspective in my industry that that was the good video game and that was right before i made the walking dead so the way i kind of think about story now um, or at least I did in Firewatch, and I'm in. Like we're starting a new thing now, so I'm just challenging all my assumptions about how we tell a story, and like building in a lot of prototypes that push the decisions we made in Firewatch all the way to like the margins, and then go what's in this what's in this empty space here. But the way I think about story now is like you can still do all that while telling like we the way we thought about Firewatch was the way we think about like Disneyland or a really good real world game which is we give players somewhere to go don't tell them how to get there and then when they get there challenge their expectations about what they're going to find and then let them react to it because when you play firewatch there's like random things that happen yeah there's um i don't know how you're gonna get down to like i don't know i don't know what your like your mental journey is like trying to find like the teen camp on day two you know, like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't know if you get super lost and then finally, like, catch something out of the corner of your eye that, dra- that like, points you south and you're like, oh, now I'm on the hunt. And then as you're doing that, you happen to stumble into a Delilah conversation where she's asking you about, like, your life before you got out here. Or did you just know exactly where to go because you opened a walkthrough and then Delilah never called you and you didn't have the discovery moment, but you, like... This got turned around once and got attacked by a weird raccoon. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. So um, <laughs> I think that is sort of a really interesting way to tell a linear story. Because, I mean, if everyone's, like, if at the end of the game you could hit a button and then just, like, print out your, like, screenplay of your playthrough, like, people's would be different. Things would be in different orders. And be by virtue of being in different order, like, they feel different. You know, like, that's just, like, whatever film class 101 eisenstein stuff and i find that to be at least in making firewatch i found that to be really satisfying and a way to sort of address the the, this hard line between the needs of a story to be linear and the desire of a video game with systems to be 
a little more chaotic or dynamic at least. I get more and more sort of interested in that stuff and we like barely started to dabble in it in Firewatch. Like there's a lot, like the end line and like the you arrive at the tower talking to Delilah for the first time. The whole like last convert, like the, whatever, the last mm, 30 seconds of that conversation is a random roll between a bunch of different things that Delilah can say to you about why you've decided to take this job. And then it cuts and says like day one and Henry is at his desk, like typing on a typewriter. And like the day before the game came out or around when the game came out, we um, were over at Pixar, which isn't like they're across the bay from us showing them the game. Humble brag. And they're like, the, the humble is super humble. You know, Pixar, the, the, we walked past their like mountain of Oscars. We were recognized by Pete doctor came up to me and I signed a couple autographs. For his kids, I think it was like actually someone was dating someone from Pixar. <laughs> I think that's why we went over there. It was somebody was like, my boyfriend works here. Can we show him Firewatch in their lunchroom? But uh, they're like so linear. Like they're like obviously like the masters of linear story to the point where they obsess over individual frames of the movie, you know? And like we were playing the game with a small group and Delilah had ended that conversation with like, maybe you took this job to just write your novel. That's a sort of like BS reason, like a white guy goes out in the woods and then it's like day one and Henry's typing and like, that's what happened. And everyone laughed and they're like, oh, that's such a good psych gag. And I was like, uh, yeah, I'm a genius. Um, I didn't know. Like, it's like, you know, I did like, we stopped right there and I was like, I have to be honest. Like there's like a one, there's like a 20% chance that that happens. And they were like, what? Why would you prevent that from happening for those of that other 80%? And I'm like, well, because the other 80% stuff that happens is pretty good. And there's nothing more exciting than like talking to your friend about that funny goof. And they're like, I didn't get that. And now you start to wonder as a player, like, what did, what didn't I get? Like, what am I, like, how, what's the possibility space of, of this experience? That's like for a small team, really potent. Like if we can fill the empty space of like with, a bunch of like stuff in your mind of like what am I missing or like how much of this is like how much of the story did I see then the thing that you bought and spent all this time playing just feels like bigger and more alive and that's way better than the like authorial satisfaction of everyone hearing my one good joke or whatever like that sucks (laughs) it also puts a lot more pressure on you to like be good at writing (laughs) like if I know that there's like a chance that nobody's gonna read this or hear this trash I'm like okay fine good I'll just put it in the game (laughs) I I think one of the things that Jason and I both appreciated was the length, say it's around four hours-ish, and you get the same sort of satisfaction from those four hours that you might get, at least narratively speaking, from some other games that will take up much more of your life. And I think I played it in one sitting, certainly in one day, and you've been doing these episodic games and, and games that are a little shorter, at least piece by piece. Are you more attracted to that kind of length? I think it just it kind of fits in my life better now, and it fits in Jason's life better now, I think, if it can be confined to that kind of period. But are you attracted to telling a, a much longer, more involved story, or is this, you think, the most interesting medium? Yeah, I mean, I like it, but I, you know, I would be lying if I didn't think every once in a while. And then I instantly, like, like squelch this but oh what would it be like to take our values and make something at a scale of like a red dead redemption you know like what would that be like it's like well that'd be like seven years first off um (laughs) and uh no i mean for the type of stories that 
I've we've wanted to tell at least between Walking Dead and this game and the next game, it's kind of important that you get to the end. You know, I think for the whole thing to really set up like a flan or something, <laughs> you know, like it's like a, it just kind of comes out like a little like soupy if that doesn't happen. <laughs> uh-huh. So I like making games that people can finish. You know, we were super satisfied by continuing to update this game. And like, that's really exciting to me. The idea that on day one, thousands of people can have this shared experience of finishing the core game. And then over the course of a year, we can continue to like deliver stuff to those people that allows them to recontextualize the story or like re-experience the things they liked about it. Or um, I don't even know yet, you know, like those are the things that I find to be really interesting. So I see us staying in this zone of like completable in one or two sittings games. But I, you know, I don't necessarily like, I don't think Firewatch is like a model for like what a video game should be. I think it just made sense for the team we had and the type of story we were trying to tell. But what if we had updated the game with like a two hour side story that you know that you didn't or like what happened before and you play someone from 30 years after this story or 30 years before like that would be really 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 cool and interesting and interesting to me i don't know like i don't really finish games that are over 10 hours long generally um Mm -hmm. i can't remember the last time i did I got real close to finishing Uncharted 4. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, you should finish it. I got so close. Yeah, I got so close. I'm just like right, like literally like I stopped watching the TV show Lost four episodes before the series finale. <laughs> well, you know, I've never that seen them. That was them. a good idea. <laughs> yeah, it's like not not to compare the quality of Lost Uncharted 4 at all because uh, they're very, very different and uh, one is probably worth finishing. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I just kind of went like, okay, you know, and I think there's a part of me that's like, oh, I got to finish that. But I already know that, like, I've experienced some of the highest highs I could experience in a game with what I've experienced already. Whereas, like, I don't know, I finished, I guess I finished Last of Us. Like, that was, like, no question I was going to finish that game. And I'm so glad I did, especially with the way that game ends. Yeah, I mean, it would be a bummer to me. So, actually, Last of Us is a good example. Sorry, it's a long answer. But, like, it would be a real bummer to me to, like... Like, I think the ending of Last of Us is perfect. Like, I, I like, put the controller down Very and it was just like, agree. fuck! Yeah. <laughs> like, so mad. <laughs> I was just like, go! I'm so glad I don't have a game coming out this year. I was just, like, <laughs> in a rage. It was so good. It would be a real bummer to me to somehow make something that good, that we would make something that good, then check the Steam achievements and only, like, 11% of the people who bought the game have seen it. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. I would just be it. Like I would just slow walk into like into the ocean, <laughs> you know. Like I'd be like, no, sorry. Yeah. So that's not necessarily good business, but as a, like some as a creator, that's important to me. Um, two things that I think Firewatch probably uh, executed better than maybe any game I've ever played is kind this of like is a tall most... order. Two <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like over cool it down, Jason. Of a, of a game is the tutorial and the credits. I don't know if you could call the intro to Firewatch the tutorial necessarily, but it kind of is. Um, yeah, it carries, yeah, it's supposed it, to be. There's a lot of exposition, heavy lifting that goes on there. And then the credits, which are just kind of like a thematically perfect. Like, how did you, um, how did you come up with those things? How did you build those in such a way that they just really feel like they naturally flow into the rest of the story? Yeah, I think that's sort of like a company's values thing, you know? I mean, with like the people who work here, uh, Jake Rodkin especially, really think about from the moment you're on the da- you're like your PSN dashboard and you 
click that Firewatch icon, like we're in charge of everything that comes out of the screen and it all has to like be good and fit together seamlessly. Like even just like, like I literally, we talk about what happens when you click on the Firewatch icon and it goes from being an icon and translates to a full screen image, which is just like a bright yellow background and black Firewatch logo. Like we talked about that. <laughs> We're like, what's that? You know, like, so we care a lot about it. And that's like a values thing. But uh, in terms of the beginning and the end, the beginning we knew out of the gate, we knew that you were going to make choices about Henry's life that were going to weave in and out of going out into the woods. And there was going to weave, it was going to jump between perspectives, between the second person text and first person silent, like movement. And we're like, okay, well, it makes good sense that we can just, we can have you walk and interact with and eventually get the radio. And then once you've done that, we basically just have to tell you, oh, P.S., you have a map and a compass later. <laughs> so we knew that that could like be like classic video game tutorial territory because it's the beginning. But the opening of why it was like about Henry's life was created because when we started making the game, nobody in the team knew who Henry was. And I have had like an extensive career of like not being a programmer getting better but like where you would write these documents and then people just don't read them which is like totally cool because reading documents when you have other stuff to do sucks so i just made an interactive like choose your own adventure game that was like here's who henry is and then everyone played it and was like oh my god <laughs> and i'm like yeah cool right <laughs> like okay so like and then the next question was well then where do we start the game and how do we make sure that players have this knowledge that i now have as a creator so they can start making choices with how they talk to Delilah. So we don't like, gotcha, like you're married, you know, after you've been talking to her for an hour. Now we had a problem to solve, which is how do we deliver that information to the player? And we're like, oh, well, we've already made something that does that. Can we just make that good and put it in the game? Yes. Okay, cool. Oh, and then it was really exciting. We're like, oh man, what a weird way to open a game. Don't tell anybody we're doing that. Don't show press. Never do never put that in a build that goes outside of this building because that'll be a cool surprise. And then with the end, gosh, that was just a dis- like the ending of the game, which I'll obviously talk in way less detail about, was just discovered along the way. We just we had a camera mechanic. The camera plays a role in the end, I guess. And as we started to like justify why these things were in the game to ourselves, the, those two things found each other, I guess, is the way to describe it. Uh, but we weren't pressuring ourselves too hard to make that click. We just knew that we had to do it before we shipped. And then uh, there's some music that comes in, and a lot of the game's music... Well, it's written by Chris Remo, most of it, but the, we have a license track in the game, and a lot of that comes off of just like a playlist that I'm keeping throughout development... And it's like, do we think we could get this for this much money? Like, let's try. And then it turned out we could. And um, yeah, it all just kind of... Again, it's it's like just being in touch with what's right for the game the whole time. The same way I was kind of talking about walking around the world and being like, is this right? Is this good? Does this feel right? And not having to have like... This is like such the bugaboo of so many like game designers in the industry is like having to have the perfect logical reason why something is good it's like nah man like this doesn't feel good like like that just doesn't it's just you know so like when it feels right you know and then you just like don't touch anymore and uh it was important for us that everything felt connected and felt personal to you and that's really hard in a video game because so much of it's pre-authored but we feel like we were success like again that's like a values thing like the beginning is 
the beginning and the end are both like completely personal to you guys. Like, I don't know what your experience of those things was like. I know like in the general sense of what I was hoping for, but you did things throughout the game that shaped your experience there. So I don't know, which is cool. So last question, you're working on a film adaptation of Firewatch, and I think Jason and I might do an episode later this year all about movie adaptations of video games, but I wonder... Oh, oh man, you know, I'm going to listen to that podcast. <laughs> I don't think we'll give you any answers about how to do it or anything. Yeah, no, but, that's fine. Yeah. I hope it just starts with, like, yeah, Resident <laughs> Evil and the Tomb yeah. yeah, right. It'll be lots of Uebo movies, but I wonder, you know, because <laughs> oh, obviously it's, it's good for... For the developer to make money and and that's good for gamers if the developers who make games that they like get to make money and keep making games that's good they trickle down economics of video games yeah right it's it's good for non-gamers who would never experience firewatch in any way if not for the film version of it but should a gamer who's played a game get psyched when that game gets turned into a movie like even if it gets turned into a good movie is that something that is giving them something that the game version of that story didn't give them? Is there still something that a movie can do that a game can't do? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really good question. I haven't really had the chance to talk about any of this stuff, um, so thanks for asking about it, just because of the timing when it happened and just generally don't haven't been doing press. But uh, yeah, so I think the answer in this in particular instance is yes, with the giant caveat that like, hey, like, okay, you and me listening at home, nothing gets made in Hollywood. Literally nothing. Nothing ever. Every single time you've been on like any blog, any listening to any podcast, and you hear that like there's gonna Bioshock finally is gonna be no, it's never <laughs> happening. Like things don't get made. Period. It's the it's just the ideas there's a press release and then nothing happens. But um <laughs> so with that giant caveat, we actually um our partnership with this company Good Universe run by a guy named Joe Drake, who's been around for a long time. He ran Lionsgate like through the Hunger Games era. So he's like, he's a dude who knows how to make stuff. He and the folks at Good Universe sort of responded to Firewatch in a way that was very, very uh, real in terms of like what they thought got out of it emotionally. And then we decided to, like a lot, what what happens a lot of games is that they're like, you find somebody who wants to make into a movie. They want to give you like 150 grand or whatever to like option it. And then they get to like, they have the rights to make it that over the next five years. And if they don't make it, it comes back to you. So you're like, sweet, some money in your pocket, goodbye. And then you don't talk to them anymore. Um, we didn't option Firewatches. We um, are actually like involved the whole way. And like everyone always says like, oh, but they're involved. It's like, no, we're actually, we took no money from, from anyone. <laughs> like if the Firewatch movie gets made and it does well, like we will make money. But other than that, like it's just something we think is creatively interesting. So we partnered with these guys because we felt like they shared a a value that Jake and I had, which is like, I like a lot of movies based on novels and like Hollywood in general has a, like a, like a very like long history of adaptation from look at like the big sleep. You know, you look at a lot of movies that have even like won best picture over the years that they start as like plays and books um, and short stories, especially like I just saw arrival. That was a short story. Um, that mm-hmm. was adapted. Also, see Arrival if you haven't seen Arrival. Yes, I've um, seen Arrival. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> like thing two, I walked out of and just was like, like I walked out of that movie like I was in a car accident. I was just like stumbling <laughs> through the mission of San Francisco, like bumping into people. Like I don't know, I was very emotionally intense. It was like four days after the election. It was like just a real 
Anyway, um, <laughs> I want to make a. I want the fire. The, the ideal in my brain Firewatch movie is a movie that we no one spends a ton of money making enough to make it good, but it's got a great cast and a great script, and it doesn't matter that it was a video game. And that people can walk into a theater and be told a good story and walk out and have someone tell them, did you know that was a video game? And they're like, fuck off. Are you, you know, like that's sort of like, who cares? Like, also, I can't believe you, you know, um, because like if everyone who bought Firewatch, which is a ton of people, like all went and saw the movie like day one, we would. I guess that'd actually be pretty good. <laughs> I was like, oh, wait a second. I did the math. And I went like, ah. The point is, is like, it just, it's, you know, and it's, it's a more ubiquitous medium. So I think we have a story that like, because it's founded in the characters, translates really well. But, you know, it wouldn't be a thing where like, you know, so much of like, you think about what the Bioshock movie would be or like what the Last of Us movie would be is like, oh, there's that moment that I remember and like callbacks to the medium and stuff like that. But with Firewatch, it's like, it's more like, it's a little more literary. So we could do things that as an adaptation that just made sense for, for film. And that was something that's really exciting to me to just sort of go, okay, we made like the story of Firewatch is the story of Firewatch, the video game, because all the pieces fit together. But like, we're not going to shoot the movie in first person, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> that would be a bad choice. Uh, so what story, given who these characters are and given where this like the facts of the, the setting and tone of the like the art direction, like what makes sense to walk into a theater and see? And we're just kind of talking about that now. We've talked to a couple of directors and mostly it's just the folks at Good Universe and Jake and I figuring like answering those questions for ourselves and that's a really fun experiment it's really really cool and i think if something goes into production and ends up being made it'll stand alone as its own thing it's not like some transmedia empire it'll just be a movie that you can see and I think that's the way it should be. So you're not taking Uwe Boll's mm-hmm. pitch on Henry with the axe underneath in the cave. Oh, we're being... accepting pitches from all 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 uh, bankable A plus directorial talent. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, the bear idea is going to come back actually, and <laughs> that's what's going to happen. <laughs> and he's just going to have one kind of dull axe that he fights it off with the entire time. Well, in the time that we've been talking, people could have gone and played like a, a quarter of firewatch probably and, and, and they, they should. probably should yeah. have <laughs> yeah and then they should do that now because we can't recommend it highly enough and it's been fun talking to you and people can follow you at vanaman and uh follow campo santo and whatever you do next we're looking forward to it and yeah thanks for your time oh man there's some there's some uh just push play <laughs> happening right now very good <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, I love that. Are you kidding me? That is the best. Are you kidding me? I was like, oh. Yeah, that's like a local LA band that we just found on SoundCloud or something. And we're like, will you guys do this for us? Very good. Yeah, I was like, wait, man, I want to. It's a, one of the. I don't want to spoil anything. I'm not going to say anything more about that. <laughs> oh, I thought that was like a slow fade out on on that on that yeah, hot eighties yeah, track I, I guess that it you could can be. find inside of Firewatch. Love yeah. that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the problem is when I hear that song, I'm just—it's just one in the morning, and I'm fixing a weird bug. Like that song is like Pavlovian. It's just like tastes like the pizza place down the street from our old office. All right, see you, John. Thank you so much, guys. It was really fun. So that is it for this episode. Spend responsibly, yes. whether it's today, Black Friday, or Cyber Monday. Don't buy anything you'll regret later. Don't get crushed in front of a Walmart. <laughs> no, don't do that. But at least you'll have something to listen to if that does happen <laughs> to you. 
So good luck standing in line. Have safe travels. We'll be back when you are back next week. Bye.